Welcome to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners, Fintrepid Solutions, and Pivotal Advisors. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons. Welcome to this episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you from lovely Gilbert, Arizona, where the temperatures have started to drop. I actually went for a run this morning. It was 63 degrees, and that's the first time in a very long time that I've been able to run without it being 4 a.m. in order to get those types of temperatures. So uh, very excited for that. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast and you're wondering what it is that we do here at Tycoons of Small Biz, we're a podcast that's put together by small business owners for small business owners. And really what we do is we take an opportunity to highlight the small businesses throughout the country who are doing great, great things that are really the backbone of the American economy. So with that being said, we definitely have a tycoon of small biz on the program with us today. We've got Bryn Scarborough, president and CEO of JK Products and Services for, as, and Service out of Jonesboro, Arkansas. Bryn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And I feel you on the temperature change being in Florida. We are just now getting to get a, a bit of a breather at the end of a long summer. Yeah, it's been a very long summer and uh, it's actually a little bit early for us. We typically can't count on these temperatures until after Halloween. So we're excited that uh, that it's dropped a little early. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's nice here as well. Seems like the hurricane took a lot of the heat out of the air. So we're glad to feel it. Yeah, well, it's unfortunate that that's what it took to get the uh, the heat to drop, but uh, hopefully you and yours are all are all fine and have uh, weathered the storm well. Yeah, absolutely. And looking out for our friends down south, that's for sure. But yes, here we are doing well. Yeah. So, so Bryn, you've got a little bit of a different story than than most of our guests. Most of our guests are are the founders and CEOs or or the business owners. You're not one of the founders of the business. You've actually kind of grown up in the business and then taken over as the CEO a few years ago. So, you know, before we jump into that side of things and kind of that journey, why don't you tell us a little bit about you personally? Where'd you grow up? What's your background and whatever else you'd like us to know about you personally? Sure, absolutely. So, yeah, uh, we had spoken in a previous phone call just a a little bit more about my leadership journey. And I like to call it an unlikely journey of leadership. Uh, I I really believe in and invest in unlikely leaders. Have done that across our industry as well as I have the privilege of telling you more about that. But I come from a humble beginnings, a very unlikely pedigree, you could say. I was just explaining to someone on a plane the other day. They're like, so did you set out on this path with intention? Was CEO always your plan? What was your degree in that got you here? And I just thought, you're not going to believe any of this when I tell you the path that I have taken to get here. But yeah, I grew up in in Texas um, and ended up uh, going to undergrad at Arkansas State. My family, I was homeschooled. I got a GED when I was 16. That's not a story that I would have always told you willingly. I would have certainly um, hidden that uh, well into my late 20s until I became a lot more comfortable just owning my story and and owning my path to where I am today. Um, But went to work full-time at 16 to save for college. Ended up getting a scholarship off my GED score. 
full ride scholarship to a state school. Uh, people ask me, they're like, why did you go to a state school? And I say, well, that was as wide as the lens would go at the time. Um, that was as, as big as I knew how to dream at the time. And so I ended up getting a dual degree in under uh, philosophy and political science. Political science one has served me quite well. Was certainly never an athlete, though I was on the debate team all the way through college. It's the only sport I've ever uh, meddled in, I can tell you that. Uh, and then went to work. Uh, originally, I thought I was going to be pre-law. And I spent a good bit of my senior year working for an attorney and realized that it wasn't like debate team. It was a lot of paperwork that I probably wasn't cut out for that from a relationship building perspective uh, and ended up beginning my career in sales leadership um, at 22 and have been there ever since. And so we are, our company is located in Jonesboro, Arkansas. That's also where I went to undergrad. That's how I became aware of the company that I now have the privilege of leading today um, and have been able to, to grow with them throughout that path. Uh, later on in life, went back and got my executive MBA here in Florida at the University of Tampa. Keep growing forward from that perspective. Yeah, I think it's a really cool journey. And, and it's it's actually very similar to my own journey, believe it or not. Um, I, you know, I grew up in a family that was, well, very lower middle class. Let's put it that way. There were times yeah. when we were, you know, food stamps and those sorts of things. And, you know, for me, it was... I don't know that I really realized that college was an option until my freshman year of high school. And then yeah. when I kind of learned about it, I thought, oh, you know what? I think I'd be a, I think I'd be a good lawyer and lawyers make good money. So that's the direction I'm going to go. And, and uh, the second semester of freshman year, I took a class called entrepreneurship and the stock market. And that, that kind of changed my my life. And, you know, obviously, as you know, what I do for a, for a living day to day has a lot to do with the stock market. But really, I would say that I'm a, I'm a serial entrepreneur um, and just, you know, I've owned several other businesses and still currently own other businesses outside of the, the practice that I run and, and operate today. But, you know, my parents both have GEDs. You know, we we had the author. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with the, sh the books "Effortless and Essentialism" by Greg McEwen. If you mm -hmm. haven't read those, I would I would definitely take a look. But he was on our show probably six months ago or so. He was actually uh, on, on our 100th episode. His kids, so he lives, gosh, a stone's throw from here. I mean, I could I could hit a nine iron and probably hit his house. And and his kids are all homeschooled. And they all kind of get their GEDs about 16 years old and then and then head off to university. And so, you know, a lot of a lot of tie-ins there from your background. But I, I think the biggest thing that I pick up from that, which is similar to somebody that I heard speak last week at a conference, um, her name's Allison Van Hooser, another one that you should look up if, if you're not familiar with. But she grew up in western Kentucky or maybe southern Kentucky. And, you know, she has that very deep Southern, you know, accent when she speaks. And I think people kind of prejudge her a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. with that. And, and she's similar to you. She's got the long blonde hair. And so there's another prejudgment that kind of comes into that sometimes as well. And, you know, she just talked about her unlikely story. She grew up with parents that were just her mom took off her dad was there, but he was addicted to drugs and there was, you know, not a whole lot of food in the house. But it puts something in you if you can kind of bottle it up and you have other people who kind of step in and give you a hand up at, at times. 
it can really lead you to being a fantastic leader, which is which is what I'm obviously seeing with you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you you touch on some of those topics so early. I I just got the opportunity a few weeks ago to go back to UT and speak to a group of um, undergraduate management students and ended up telling them a story that I would have never been willing to tell them a decade ago, right? That it, it doesn't really matter how much you don't fit the mold. It doesn't really matter how much you don't fit the pedigree. And believe me, UT is a much nicer school than I went to an undergrad, right? So this is a demographic that I certainly was not exposed to uh, coming up through my my undergraduate education. The transparency of the group, I mean, the, the professor came up to me afterwards. He's like, they needed to hear that so badly that this path, whatever path that they're on, can be fine and it can look different um, than, than whatever it's supposed to be, whether it's the, the degree, whether it's the pedigree, whether it's you know knowing from the time you're 18 years old that you're supposed to be going down this path. But yeah, the, the prototypical um, archetype, if you will. I really follow Sarah Blakely closely. You know, in, we talk a lot about needing female mentors in the space, needing ex- executive level female mentors in the space. There's just a vacuum uh, when you get up into that level. And, you know, there's an incredibly high value in, if your ego can handle it, being underestimated because it just leaves you in a position where people really can't predict what you're going to do next they routinely underestimate what you can do from a performance perspective. And it leaves you in a very, very strategic position. It's hard on the ego, but if your ego can handle it uh, and you can keep moving forward in spite of that, it is quite an interesting position to find yourself in. Um, And believe me, I found myself there plenty and continue to on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. And you know, I, I think I deal with that a little bit less because I mean, if we call a spade a spade, I mean, I, I'm a middle-aged white American male, right? And so people kind of look at me and expect a certain level of success a lot of the times, which which is kind of unfortunate because if they if they truly knew my story and where I came from, and, and I don't mean to to minimize at all my parents. My parents are fantastic people. My father unfortunately passed away in August. And so, you know, we, he's that's left a void in my life because he truly was a, a great person and taught me a lot of really important life lessons. But financial success, business success, mm-hmm. uh, an understanding of certain things, that didn't come from, from my dad. That came from other people in my life and then me being willing to put in the efforts and, and the work to get there, right? I mean, yeah. so, so much so that when, you know, I, I got my associate's degree first at a, at an community college, I guess is what you'd call it in, in Southern California. And then I transferred to the four-year state school, right? Mm-hmm. And when I called my parents and said, hey, graduation's coming up. And it was only about a year after the last one. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to buy you and dad tickets so that you can come and be there for my graduation. My mom said, my mom was confused because she didn't understand why or how I was graduating from college again. And then you throw the MBA on top of that and, you know, her mind. Was yeah. Just completely- yeah. I totally understand that perspective. It's, um, you know, you have, I, I was just asked over the weekend, they're like, boy, your parents must have been really successful in the business world for you to, to be where you are. And I thought, I understand how you might think that. And, and even with travel, for example, they said, oh, did you, did you grow up traveling? Is that why it's so important to you now? I said, no. 
Absolutely not. Um, it's a true departure and it really is, it's paving a way. And while I, while I might not make those same decisions again, you know, the level of resourcefulness and I guess some naivete, right? You're naive enough to say yes and try and to take responsibility for certain things. You don't know enough to know you can't do it. Really, honestly, the the more I advance in my career and the more experience I have, I realize that sometimes that's really the difference. You're just willing to give it all you've got and try, and you don't really come in with any knowledge. Uh, my MBA taught me a lot about that, taught me a lot about imposter syndrome, honestly, as well, because I was by far the youngest in my cohort by at least a decade. And I even told this story the other day. I thought I kept expecting someone to come in and tap me on the shoulder and be like, I'm so sorry, we've made a mistake. You're not actually supposed to be here. You know, because I like eked in on the experience, eked in on the timeline. And I'm sitting there at the time, and this was seven years ago when I started, but I'm sitting there at the time with C-suite executives that I'm just blown away by. And the opportunity to literally on an eye for eye level, not pit myself against, but run in parallel with them, compare, you know, compare and contrast what I was able to accomplish was really a game-changing experience for me. Because at the end of the day, I came out a lot more confident and aware of my own skill set, but then also realizing that, yeah, absolutely, it, it had a lot more to do with just what I was willing to try and take responsibility for. I realized I was doing that a lot earlier than probably others in in my space, maybe because I didn't didn't know better. I didn't know to doubt. I didn't know I couldn't. Um, and as it turns out, I could. But yeah, I didn't know to doubt. I didn't know what was possible and what was impossible. And I think that's part of it. We learned a lot, especially in the last few years. You know, we were as leaders, it's opening and closing businesses, predicting and protecting employees, that type of thing. People are looking at us like like we know something that they don't. Like we have some sort of access to information that they don't have, or like we get it early, right? And have time to process it. We get all that information at the same time. We're just willing to do something with it and sometimes fail um, and fail really publicly and, and pivot and make corrections and move on from it. And I tell my team all the time that sometimes I think leadership is as simple as being willing to fail publicly and let other people learn from it and then get up and try again because you'll you'll never stop. And if you're trying and if you're really taking risks, you're going to continue to fail in front of other people as long as you're doing it. It's a big difference, I guess. And I didn't know that as a young person. I thought as a young person everybody wanted this. That that's why wouldn't they? Everyone wanted the opportunity to have responsibility for a big project or a company or whatever. And that's not necessarily true. But yeah, yeah. it's it's an interesting process. Yeah, it is. And and I think that's, a, you know, an interesting perspective. I mean, the, the imposter syndrome aspect, I mean, I've, I've been in different groups throughout my career. And, you know, I'm, I'm in a Vistage group right now with some other business owners. And they, we had a guest speaker come in that that works with high level executives specifically on the coaching and therapy and, you know, mental toughness type of, of things. And, and he talked a lot about imposter syndrome. And it was one of those where I'd never had anybody put a label on it, but mm-hmm. it was something that I knew was inside of me, right? I mean, growing up pretty darn poor, coming from a family that, you know, didn't necessarily even fully understand education. 
to now rubbing shoulders with people who are highly educated, managing money and businesses for people who are very, very successful. Um, and you, and you just feel like you kind of don't belong sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. And even more so, I mean, I, I, my MBA was at an upper tier program, let's put it that way. Right. And so, you know, I go through the the process and and I decided pretty late I was going to do it, took the GMAT without any, any kind of studying whatsoever. My GMAT score was kind of middle of the road. It was in that average space for the people who got in. And then I go through the interview process and the person that I interviewed, the professor I interviewed with said, you know, I just, I just don't think this is going to be a fit for you. And he kind of honed in on one semester, maybe two semesters of my undergrad and some grades that just weren't so great. And, you know, I explained to him, I said, well, I, I got to give you some background on that. I was married at the time and I still, I'm still married to the same person, but I said, I was married at the time and my wife was going through a very high risk pregnancy, very high mm -hmm. risk. Pregnancy. And so my focus was not necessarily on making sure I got an A in those classes. I did enough to make sure that I was able to pass those classes and, and move on to the next level of my degree. You know, the head of the program called me a couple of days later and I said, well, you know, so-and-so told me he didn't, he didn't think I was the right fit. I wasn't going to get in. And he said, man, I'm so sorry that he gave you that impression. You and your skill set is exactly what we need in this program. We've got all kinds of executives that kind of work mm -hmm. in that middle management space in large corporations. We don't have a lot of people who have done it and rent, you know, run the business themselves, whether it's their own business or not. And we, we need people with your skill sets. So hopefully that didn't rub you the wrong way and you'd be willing to join the program. So, you know, it, it worked out, but it, it was different. And I was 30 at the time. I don't know how old mm -hmm. you were when you started the program. But Same. You know, I started when I was 30 as well. Yeah. So it, it's, it's an interesting conversation to understand how many, you know, crossover points we have in our lives. So that's it. That's cool. Well, you know what's what is interesting and what comes to mind when you say that is that we we're raised to believe, especially as we start working our way up in the professional world, that leadership is some innate quality that you're born with uh, until you actually begin leading. You know, they say that you'll learn as much from the bad leaders, sometimes more than you do from good leaders. I believe I have given both of those opportunities to my teams. I look back at the teams I led at 25 years old and think, oh, dear God, what they must have learned from me. And hopefully it's a different story today. But, you know, we have this idea that you, you're either born with it or you're not. You have, you've got it or you don't. And that's just unequivocally untrue. But, you know, that was also applied to myself. I even hesitate to tell this story because I know it's going to live forever on the Internet. Uh, but going through undergrad and honestly trying to, to get through something like college algebra, math with letters, I was convinced. I Yeah, I just, I can't do math. I can't finance. I just can't, under, I don't have no foundation for it. I was missing a gap, truly a gap in my education over years. Uh, and I had to fight like an animal to make up for that as an adult. And I did. And as it turns out, I'm don't get me wrong, I don't live for Excel. It's really not where I do my best work or enjoy it. But when it comes to finance and honing in on a problem in, in your margin and your PL and, and working through that type of information, I'm good. And I never would have known that and never would have even tested the theory 
if I hadn't have been willing to to practice at something that I had told that I just wasn't born with, just didn't have it. Your brother's great at that. You're not, you can, you should focus on the right, you know, whatever, right. It's just, and sometimes there's a little bit of, you know, male, female aspect in there as well. But yeah, it's the same thing with leadership, right? It's practice. It's, you've got to practice the hard stuff. You've got to practice the hard conversations. You've got to practice the risk-taking. Sometimes even, even the failure to gain the experience. Nobody's born being a great leader. If so, how? And what are those genes? How do we isolate those genes? I don't know what they are, other than maybe exposure and great education. I'm not sure. No, there's, yeah, there's definitely a lot of truth to that. I mean, does it, does it happen? Do we see fathers who are great leaders and then their children are also great leaders? Yeah, we do see it, right? Yeah. But we see more often where a father or a mother is a great leader and their children are not, right? Right. Definitely not um, genetic. It's a it's a learned behavior, and if you put in the efforts uh, to do so, now are there certain character traits and genetics that will help you? No doubt about it. But yes, being stubborn not- is one of them. Like <laughs> as my grandmother would have said, stick to itiveness is one of them. Tenacity, yeah, there are certain traits. Being the driver of the ship, not not the passenger. That there's just certain aspects. Definitely. But man, so much of it can be learned and practiced and improved upon and developed, right? Invested in at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's let's kind of unpack that a little bit. Let's talk about specific leadership lessons. You know, I think everybody kind of talks about leadership lessons through COVID or things that you've kind of learned since and through COVID and, and you know, kind of what are you still learning? So if you want to take that side great if you want to just talk about leadership in general and lessons you've learned either one is is great is great with me yeah i i love how with the current um news economic news going on we act like you know we're somehow on the other side of whatever COVID is we're not we just need a new name for whatever we're dealing with now whatever this non-normal situation is because we're not going back to whatever we used to know as normal I think that was one of the first lessons and the lessons that I've conversations I've tried to make very common among my team is that there's no normal to return to. This is this is where we live now. This this constant mental flexibility, adaptability, pivoting your making a plan and then pivoting your plan, not getting too emotionally connected to an outcome, controlling your controllables. And I know that that all sounds really generic, but gone are the days where you set a budget and 12 months later you're you can still use that budget and it still makes sense, right? Because there's there's so many variables that are changing on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Um, that's definitely one of them. I feel like we never really stopped, even though our language and our verbiage around the process makes it sound like somehow we're done with, with, done with it, done with COVID, done with whatever it is. We're not from a leadership perspective. The lessons that really continue today, you know, we... Everyone saw a lot of volatility in their employees. They saw a lot of turnover happening. You know, we, we said the entire time, you know, what, what people are carrying in with them to work, the, the backpack's gotten heavier. So what people are bringing with them is much heavier. We've, we've got to be cognizant of that, but people are also making decisions based on that and we don't have control over it. We still see that today. It's gotten better, calmed down. But what it's left us with as an organization is, constantly reinforcing the front line 
um, and making sure that frontline employees, A, process for educating and re-upping frontline employees is as streamlined as possible so that we're not vulnerable to turnover risk or as vulnerable as we were before. And then this commitment to education, you know, in the past, and in the far past, which is 2019 right now, this is like a generation ago because we've been through so much trauma since, you know, you you kind of went through this, you had this idea of cycles, the employee education cycle, like you were onboarding for a little while and then you were done because you were done. You didn't, you weren't educating all the time. You weren't onboarding all the time. And I think, you know, even though we're an organization in the U.S. of around 80 people, everyone I talk to from 15 employees to 1,500 employees and beyond, that education cycle never stops now. We are constantly reinvesting. And that's that's a top-down perspective. It, it takes a lot out of your leaders. And so you also have to make sure, and what I've learned is that I have to make sure that we're constantly reinvesting in our leaders so that they have something to pour from because they are constantly training, constantly reaffirming processes, constantly giving information that they might have just given a few weeks ago and reinforcing and reinforcing and reinforcing. We really are are having to come back to what we believe to be tribal knowledge because our tribal knowledge in most industries has gotten much shallower. And we're trying to address that, but also we didn't have the processes or the systems in place to really keep that, that knowledge repeatable without just constant input from leaders. And then how do you get your work done at the same time? So we're working on systems and putting systems in place that kind of address both the qualitative and the quantitative side of business performance, the leadership development side with our team, but then also process refinement and, you know, making department by department processes better for our customer experience. And we just learned that there's really two sides to that coin. You you can make a process great, but at the end of the day, if you're not teaching leadership skills, it's only going to go so far and vice versa. If your process is broken, you can be a great leader, but you can't get people through your sales cycle um, and your customer experience isn't going to be good. And so both take an intense amount of focus and our, our leadership team spends an intense amount of time. I can say that's probably the most other than supply chain issues, other than variability on freight time, water time, that type of thing that we're all dealing with. I think as leaders, that's what we're spending most of our time on is trying to reinforce stability in our teams. And then how do how do we reinforce that level of just psychological, I, would, I don't want to say safety because that's a different context, but the psychological confidence of an employee that's only been there two months, but knows where the answers are, can find the answers and can speak confidently to their, to their product, to their division, to whatever problem they're trying to solve because it frustrates customers, right? They're dealing with a, a set of employees that's probably on average much younger and much greener than they were in 2019. And we're, we're all dealing with it, uh, regardless of industry. And everybody's addressing it in different ways, but I know we are all working hard uh, on the problem. Yeah, I tell you, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, the first thing that you said about them coming to work with a, a heavier backpack, you know, than, than they've had in the past. And, you know, I, I've, I've been reading an awful lot about that recently. And, and some of the things that are, you know, that are coming out where you've got employees that either feel a certain way about 
their job or they're maybe working a second job and that's taking away from the first job. And, you know, how do you deal with that? And, and, you know, just different, different approaches in, in realizing that, you know, if, if we ask different questions as leaders and employers to get to the root of why they feel the way that they feel or why they're doing what they're doing, it will lead to a better outcome for not only them, but for us as the employer and as the, the company itself, because we're truly investing in them, whatever it is that they need at that point, when we invest in them, then they, of course, invest in what we're doing as an organization, and they're hoping to drive that forward. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because we have, during the worst of COVID, we were kind of in emergency response mode. We went from the kind of the core executive team meeting sometimes every morning, first thing every morning, um, to three times a week, to twice a week, to once a week. And then by the beginning of last year, we were finally able to, thankfully, we recovered from a sales perspective in a really healthy way earlier than some other industries did. And we were able to kind of grow our leadership team beyond the bandwidth of just emergency response, of just putting out the next fire. But what I also realized and what the rest of the team realized is that it took a real active and intentional shift to leave that decision-making process and to leave that day-to-day mindset of where's the next fire. We had gotten out of the mindset of how, how do we lay the foundations for the next 18 to 24 months of growth and make decisions in that way to what's the thing that the employee is screaming about today or where's, where's the squeaky wheel or what's burning down the house. And that took some time as a leadership group to intentionally and actively exit that mindset. And, and once we did, we really reestablished our own. Really, it's, it's a leadership group for anyone in our organization who leads other people. Anyone who is responsible for feeding or managing others is a part of our core leadership team. That is, And it's very qualitative. For some people, it's very... Um, woo-woo and out in the woods. We read the books. We do the leadership development. We have a a safe space where people can talk about, listen, I have this issue. I don't know how to deal with it. HR is involved. Everybody is involved so that we can hopefully continue to up our awareness and our acumen to be able to feed that into our organization. But it really took a backseat during the worst of COVID because we were just responding to an emergency. We did not shift back into this growth and development mode naturally. It didn't happen by chance. It happened really by kind of ripping the Band-Aid off and say, hey, guys, we need to start working on some of these processes. We need to work on our customer experience. We're coming back to leadership development intentionally. And that was a top-down initiative. Uh, It really came back to like, what am I focused on? What are What is our core team of executives focused on? And then our group of managers outside of that. In fact, just today, we kicked off our first total company lunch and learn, which is solely focused on individual development around our core values. We redefined our core values after COVID. Really took a hard reset to say, who are, we're a changed organization after this process, after the last couple of years. Um, and who are we today and what do we stand for? And so really have shaped a new development process around our core values um, and knowing that, but the leadership team had to be aligned first, right? It had to be something that, you know, they were able to speak to and live. Otherwise, what's the point? Um, it has to be, you know, 
led from the top and it has to be lived from the top most definitely. Um, but it takes time and it takes a lot of emotional input and effort. Um, and sometimes at the end of your day, that's the last conversation you want to have. Sometimes it's easier just to, you know, work on the process and not the people. And I understand that, but it, it really, it's a space where we have to go back and actively reinvest um, after exiting kind of COVID response mode. Yeah. I mean, and, and here's the thing. I mean, in your, in your organization specifically, I'm sure that you're still dealing with buyers, whether it be supply chain yeah. issue, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, so that those fires still have to be dealt with, yeah. but if constantly stay in that mode, you'll never get back to what's going to take you from here to here. Right. So right. I think it's an interesting thing to look at. And, and obviously I think there, there are plenty of businesses out there who aren't realizing that, okay, I've got to start to focus on the future now, in addition to the, the fires that I continue to have to put out. Yeah, it wasn't easy. I mean, we had to have some tough, tough conversations and I, None of my leadership team is on here today. Maybe they should be a, they would be a better frame of reference to give this information. I hope that we struggle well together. Uh, I hope that, I, th- I think we do. I, we put a premium on being able to have regular and difficult conversations respectfully, but you can get out of practice really quickly. One of those things that if you do not actively uh, engage in it and do it intentionally, it can just fall off the desk because it is the last thing you want to do at the end of the day. We had to pull the Band-Aid off on certain things and just say, and, and I'll give an example. This is one that we really didn't love starting out, but we needed to, to go back to our, our customer experience division by division. We are a capital investment product. And so when people invest with us, they're buying a product and keeping it long-term, which means they have a relationship across multiple divisions in our company, a long-term relationship. And so we really needed to go back and focus on kind of that that handoff between divisions instead of just tossing the fire or tossing the issue from one department to the other. Um, I heard an analogy the other day about it being a, a relay race and how smooth is your handoff to the next runner behind you from, or are you just tossing the baton over your shoulder and running away? You know, we had some issues to address. And so, but we had gotten out of the habit of having time and we still don't, time is, time is relative. Uh, time is where you make your priorities, I think. But we'd gotten out of the habit of kind of digging some of these things up from the root instead of just handling the surface fire. And so I had division leaders go back and literally pull up their their cringiest, worst examples of customer service from the last few months and just bring them all. Bring bring at least five examples. Three wasn't enough. Three wasn't enough to get my point across. You needed like at least five. And at first they're like, I got so much justification. I got so much kickback, so much. I'm not really sure what you're talking about. My team doesn't do that we don't have that problem. And I'm thinking if, so then I put a list of like red flag issues together. Like if you're not aware of any customer service issues in your department, red flag. If you have not seen communication going through to your customers in the last few months, red flag. And it took a while to even say, like to re-engage in this space. And so now at least as we're re-engaging in conversation, when these things come up, even though everyone hated that exercise, 
they're willing to just say, hey, this happened in my department. This was a great opportunity to learn. And there were multiple points where we where the process broke down and we could have stopped the problem. And we still have work to do. We still have painful work to do. But people are at least used to the pain again. And so we just had to get back to that point. We had to make the difficult piece of the conversation so common that no one was, you're not justifying your reason for being on the leadership team, right? You're not trying to justify your existence, not trying to defend your job, none of those things. We're all working towards the common goal of making our customer experience better. And we can't do that if if we're just defending why our employee was right, right? It just, we just can't do that. And we're not done, right? We've got miles to go, but normalizing the conversation around those really cringy topics sometimes is is part of it. Uh, I don't enjoy it either, right? I, I really don't, but it's valuable feedback. Yeah, and I mean, that that can be true in so many different areas. That's true in personal relationships. That's true in business partnerships. It's true in, you know, individual departments. Uh, having those tough conversations is really what's going to save each of those relationships or organizations to be able to, to then take it to the next level. I think that's a perfect spot to, to take a quick break. We'll, we'll have a quick call to action for our listeners. And then we'll jump back in and talk a little bit more about uh, your culture, your workplace, what it is that you guys are building over there. Absolutely. Hey there, tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years and you'd like to know what your business is worth, please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now back to today's program. All right, Tycoons, welcome back. We're here with Bryn Scarborough with JK Products and Services. We've been talking a lot about, obviously, the pandemic and different things that change and, and really kind of how do you emerge from that while you're still dealing with the fires and, you know, kind of build to the future. So, Bryn, I want to unpack a little bit more about what you guys are doing internally to kind of reimagine your, your culture, your workplace organization for the employees that you have today and the leaders that you have today. And then, you know, what that's going to do to sort of lay the groundwork for where you're going from, from here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a few ways to address that question. Culturally and from a workplace perspective, we certainly have had to become more flexible. That's a, a softball answer. The real answer is we're still trying to figure it out. We're still trying to figure out the recipe that really makes sense from a productivity perspective um, between hybrid and in-person. We have certainly grown our remote workforce pre-pandemic we were probably, you know, 80, 80, 20 remote. I've been remote for seven years. Uh, once I started working my way up into leadership of the company, it no longer made sense for me to be in rural Arkansas anymore. It's a great place to be during a pandemic. We were really able to avoid some of the more difficult issues uh, that some areas of the country went through, there's no doubt. And so now we're prob- probably getting close to Next year, probably 50-50, remote and in-person, as as we're also growing our national footprint. During that time, we have also switched from a 
a distributor base to a direct-to-consumer sales model. Those processes were already in place before the pandemic. Obviously, we didn't know COVID was coming. We knew that it was a, a business decision that needed to take place for our customer experience, for the customer relationship that we had been growing over time. As it turns out, it really has reinforced and strengthened us as an organization and, and changed the way we do business and come to market. From a company perspective, I will tell you, I think we have had to, to listen. Sometimes we still really have to make compromises between what we know that employees want and say they value today versus what we can really afford and make decisions on from a productivity perspective. I, I think most leaders are in a similar position, to be honest with you. We can get certain things done remotely. We can complete an agenda. We can you know, meet on certain topics. But when it comes to really, you know, sitting around a war room and coming up with creative solutions or brainstorming a new space or a product launch or something like that, we really have not found a way to do that in a virtual space and do it well. We haven't found a way to give people creative freedom in a virtual space where they can show up, whether it's with sticky notes or you can't say no for 20 minutes, you can only say yes or whatever whatever creative exercise you go through to get to your outcome. We haven't figured out how to do those things. Um, and we've been trying for a few years now. And so it has changed productivity. There's no doubt. And then you you still are trying to work and balance, you know, we the backbone of our organization, um, and, and these guys know this, but the backbone of our organization is our warehouse and logistics department. These guys are the most resourceful, most loyal, and, and scrappiest group of individuals that we have in our organization. And they they never went home. They can't go home. They have to show up every day. They have to. We rely on them to receive, turn, repack products, sometimes under intense pressure. Sometimes they're getting 15, 20 containers in a week and sometimes nothing. And then it the cycles have just been incredibly unpredictable. And we've done everything from build our own pallets in the parking lot because pallets were not available to, I mean, you name it, these guys are resourceful. And so it's really balancing the needs of all types of employees. And and I wish I could tell you that we had a great recipe worked out. I think we're trying a lot of things. I think it has at least opened up our minds. And I know it's opened up my mind. Many of my managers would tell you this. I said, you know, two years ago, I might have had a really set opinion about where I thought a team should be or where they should be located or should it be in office or remote. I can't say that any of that's really true today. I find myself saying a lot. Yeah, I, I think that that opinion served me and us three years ago. I can't say that's true today. Let's try it. Let's see if it works. But we're trying. And that's the best I can say at the moment. I don't know what the final outcomes are going to be. We we have lost some productivity, there's no doubt. We are spending more time sometimes to get basic functions accomplished. And I know that's true across industries and it's expensive and it makes it difficult um, to maintain. And so, you know, we're going to continue to see that, but we have to find other ways to create efficiencies. And that can sometimes be harder to do when you can't just pull your whole team together and say, where is this thing broken or where can we make this thing better? Yeah, but that one I that one I am learning. Seeking advice, trying to to find the people who have much larger organizations that maybe have figured it out better than we have so far. Yeah, it's interesting to watch. I mean, obviously, manufacturing and shipping 
can't handle it can't can't be handled virtually right so <laughs> there's there is no virtual option for that i think that when there's an opportunity to to do it virtually a lot of times it can make more sense and you can find uh, you know different efficiencies not just for the organization but for the employees as well right mm-hmm. i mean about the the options that that gives them to not spend an hour a day in in the car commuting or you know whatever the case may be there there are plenty of reasons to do that when it makes sense but the organization has to figure out what's going to work and what's not you know it, it it's interesting to me though that after coming through this whole thing that there are still organizations out there that believe that you have to be 100% back in office now and that there's no you know leeway on that and i just i just don't know that that's the right answer either you know i mean our our organization we're we're overseen by finra and the sec which are large governmental bodies right and they've had guidelines in place mainly for information security which we are 100 on board with but when we're still being told that your administrative assistant can't can't work from home they've got to be in your office i'm looking at it and thinking but with the technology today, is the information any more secure in my office than it is in their house if we have everything set up appropriately still? And so, you know, there is still that <laughs> those groups of people who haven't quite figured out that we are definitely in a different world. And I think the way that you put it was exactly right. It's it's like we've jumped a whole generation yeah. in the last absolutely. Yeah. And I there is there is and going to be somewhat of a backswing. Um, and I think we're beginning to see it because efficiency, I I think over the next few months, and I'm certainly not in a doomsday perspective from an economic standpoint, right? We, in, in our industry is really fairly recession resilient. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say the R word here, but <laughs> either way, I, there is going to be a, a backswing, right? Because we have kind of inflated, not necessarily our workforces, but we've inflated sometimes to be able to meet demand and meet demand in a quick way. We're seeing it across organizations, across industries. And then suddenly they're tightening tightening down the, the spend on personnel because they realize they're not getting as much for their money anymore uh, and not getting as much accomplished, I hate to say. And, you know, there will always be those people when they work from home and, and I'm one of them. If I don't, you know, set really clear boundaries for myself, the work just never stops. It, it, it helps to have an office with a door on it and I can just leave and close the door. It doesn't mean I won't come back in, but you know, there, there are always going to be those people and those people live in the office as well, right? It, it's, it's a mindset, but we don't really have great systems and strategies in place to kind of create accountability maybe for entry level or newer employees that don't maybe have those personal systems in place or don't have the discipline or the understanding of, of really what it takes if, if they do want to grow up through an organization and do that remotely. It doesn't mean you have to work 15 hours a day. That's not my point. But it's just, you know, you, you can't work 40% of the time and then us be able to maintain that from an employment perspective. And so it is tough. And we're trying a lot, but we have really leapfrogged, I think you're right, a whole generation of development where we would have done this much more slowly and conservatively had had COVID not taken place. Um, and now we're we're not really sure how to address the problem all the time. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's also created some pretty big 
benefits to a lot of really large organizations, right? I mean, think about all these large, you know, Fortune 500 or not, but large organizations who are who are housed in, you know, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, you know, all these all these cities that are overly congested in a lot of situations, mm-hmm. overly expensive to live in, a lot of really negatives to living in those cities that in the past required that their executives or people that, you know, that were really important to the organization as far as they were concerned to live in those cities. And now mm-hmm. all of a sudden they can open up their entire job force, if you will, or workforce to the whole country and find the best person for that position, no matter where they live in the country. And it's, I think it's created some pretty big advantages for those organizations. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, even for smaller organizations like us, it's created advantages because we can, as we've grown and we've grown our national footprint, we found that if we were looking from a traditional perspective, finding that skill set in a brick and mortar office place at our distribution location could be very difficult and unrealistic to serve our, our growing needs. So yeah, we have sales managers all over the country. We have, you know, an executive director of sales in Naples and Bristol, Tennessee, and all, you know, all over. And it gives us the ability, even as a smaller company, to compete and go out and get the skill set that we need. There's no doubt. So yeah, it's it's definitely a dual-edged sword. Uh, listen, I'm not against it. I've, I've been doing it for seven years, but I'm, I'm also a road warrior from that perspective. Um, and I see that I see the value of both. I think what we the questions we get asked all the time is how, how do we balance it across a, an employee population that has very different job demands across roles, has very different expectations, meets a very different need for the organization depending on what they do. And that's really hard to do. There's no blanket policies, right? There's no, not, there's no one size fits all handbook policy that makes that make sense is what we found. Yeah, neither one of us uh, took a class in business school about remote workforces. No, you are so right. And even at that time, I think at least 30 to 40% of my MBA cohort was probably working remote, at least part of the time already. But yeah, you're right. It has changed so fast. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, road to go down. But, you know, we're we're running tight on time. But you said something that I I feel like I have to ask you about and and have you talk about the strategy that you guys employed and why you did it. And you said that you guys made a shift from a distributor setup to direct to consumer. So what was what was the strategic reasoning and what did you guys do specifically to pull that off and, and how has it benefited and what have the, the difficulties been to transition? So I'll give you the, the Cracker Jack version of it. So it, it, for us, meaning we, our core competency really comes from, you know, we, we serve commercial investment equipment in the tanning, red light and water massage space. And the types of businesses that we serve are gyms, tanning, salons and spas. Over the last 10 to 15 years, those businesses from a, a national franchise perspective have really grown up and, and franchising in general has really exploded, as we all know, in the U.S., you know, in the last two decades. Um, it is the land of the franchise. If you look in other places around the world, the U.S. is just by far and away ahead. And I think COVID has even 
accelerated and put more fuel in that tank for people to want to buy into an organization for resource availability and those types of things. And so what we had found, we were um, a family-owned organization up until about 2018. In 2018, we were bought out by private equity. We really really went through a professionalization of the company at that time, um, had a lot of great opportunities to kind of reimagine and reposition ourselves as an industry um, and as a manufacturer as well. And with that came the opportunity and came the real need to reposition ourselves with our customers as well. We had national accounts that were growing up and growing at a rapid pace that could no longer be served by any distributor or their territory. These territory lines had been drawn in the 80s and 90s when the industry was completely different than it was today. And it also had, as we know, from a direct-to-consumer perspective, and when, when you're spending sometimes multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars with us to, to create a business around your salon, spa, gym, you name it, um, people aren't going to put up with a lot of reputational damage or service interruptions um, when it comes to that type of spend. Now, that's not to say anything bad about that business model, but what had happened is we had outgrown that business model and it had created barriers between us and our end consumer and our ability to do a couple of things. Um, our ability to to control the brand experience uh, and control the experience of our customer with our brands and introducing new technology and how that technology came to market. And then also controlling and being able to create pricing integrity across all markets across the entire country. There was an increased need for that because you would have a single customer that would have locations in all 50 states. And so they were quite well aware of the variances between pricing from various different networks that we were selling into, right? You could not main, you couldn't maintain the, the pre-Amazon mindset where people couldn't price shop from one provider to the next. They couldn't compare the level of service they were getting. And so it really just became time for us to, to start the revolution, I hate to say, uh, and move that forward. Strategically, that came from an intense level of legal planning uh, making sure that we could these were these were old neglected contracts that had been out in the universe for a long time. They needed to be updated. Um, and really to work that took about three and a half years to really transition through that process and to transition through that process successfully. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. It, 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 it was an intense it's kind of like the last three years since COVID. I probably got an like thirty five years worth of education in that three and a half years. Uh, when it comes to just the price of peace versus the price of war and when do you make those decisions and how do you engage. And absolutely, the decisions that we made are what have reinforced us to come out of COVID stronger and with a better market position and also to protect the core company during something like a pandemic, which we would have never known was going to happen because there is no way we could have maintained an additional layer between us and the customer during a pandemic, there's just, it's not possible. But then as a result of that kind of, you know, once you leave the, the battle behind, what it leaves us with the ability to do is to use this national infrastructure that we have and that we've established over time to now expand beyond our core market into, and when I say core market, I mean traditional tanning equipment. 
expand beyond our core market into deeper red light portfolios, water massage, automated wellness equipment that really has become incredibly important in a post-COVID world where people are looking to give very high value experiences, but also trying to reduce their personnel vulnerability. And we really provide products that are incredibly durable and run very consistently and run with very little interaction, meaning we're not requiring an esthetician. They're not a therapeutic application. It's purely wellness-based. And so an operator can run a lot of our equipment with you know, minimal staff. And so it kind of solves that problem of not only staffing vulnerability, but also in some ways kind of, let's say, travel vulnerability, those types of things. We give you that moment of, of rest and relaxation, even though you might be choosing to, to make cuts or, or somewhere else on your, your nails, your hair, something like that when it comes to how you're spending your money. So yeah, it's it's been a long process and one that certainly was a, a learning experience, but as it turns out, it was essential uh, for us to be able to not only move our customer experience forward, but then also just to continue to grow the types of services that we're able to offer to our customers in a consistent way. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a perfect example of a really hard decision that leaders sometimes have to make and live with the consequences, right? And luckily for you, the the consequences were very, very positive, but that's not always the case. Oh, yeah, absolutely right. So many lessons, uh, so many lessons that don't need to live forever on the internet, but so many lessons. And it has, at the end of the day, uh, we could have never known what it was preparing us for and how it was kind of shoring up the organization, not only from a financial perspective, but just from a value perspective as well. Knowing that now, would I absolutely repeat the process? Yes. Would I look forward to it? No. Like I said, intense, intense learning. But yeah, sometimes that's what it's about. This is another season of intense learning. I I don't think we're done for a while. Uh, We're really taking the experience of sometimes multiple careers and condensing it uh, over the last few years. And that theme seems to be continuing. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, Bryn, I could I could talk to you for hours, but we've come to the end of uh, the hour that we've allocated for this, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. I've learned a lot. I enjoy your your personality, the way that you convey messages, and and I think your company is very lucky to have you as a leader. Well, thank you so much. At first, I thought, oh gosh, how are we going to fill up sixty minutes? But you are right; it has flown. So I hope it is interesting for your listeners as well. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. Thank you very much for being here and. Uh, We'll stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Arizona time for an introduction to another great tycoon. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.